Why Talk Climate, an expert podcast series on mobilizing youth for climate action, produced and directed by BCCIC Climate Change. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to episode four of the Why Talk Climate podcast. Before we dive into this episode, we're excited to announce that we have been selected as one of the finalists for the Future Ground Prize powered by the David Suzuki Foundation. This is exciting, exciting news. The BCCIC Climate Change Youth Empowerment Program worked together to design projects and conduct engaged research, liaise with the government at the municipal and provincial levels, gain practical skills and work experience, and amplify and tackle pressing issues related to climate change and climate justice. The climate crisis continues to affect us all in unparalleled ways. And through advocacy, research, and storytelling, we hope to inspire a community of change. So please, please, please vote for us. If you're listening, please vote. You can vote on davidsuzuki.org. That's davidsuzuki.org. And the link is in our bio on Instagram at bccic.climate. This episode is part one of our roundtable on this year's United Nations Commission on the Status of Women. I'm joined today by Mark Castonge, a member of the podcast team who will be helping host the roundtable. Welcome to the podcast, Mark. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to talk with our wonderful guests today. Mark, you're going to start us off today. What can you tell us about the United Nations Commission? And explain it to us as if someone has never heard of the commission before. Yeah, so this March, uh, BCIC delegates attended the 66th session of the United Nations Commission on the Status of Women, or the CSW. The CSW is an intergovernmental body dedicated to promoting gender equality through discussion between UN member states and civil society. This year's priority theme was achieving gender equality in the context of climate change. I really like that theme, and so I'm really excited that we're dedicating this episode to speaking about this entire commission, but also learning more about it from delegates that actually attended. We're so excited to welcome to the podcast three of BCCIC's CSW delegates to this year's commission, Patashi Pims, Anik Vadne, and Vib Wadwa. Thank you so, so much for joining us today. And to start off this amazing episode, we'd love to hear about your backgrounds and your interests. And can you tell us a little bit more about what brought you to CSW? I'm gonna start with Patashi. Thank you so much for that. Before I speak, it's tradition for me to introduce myself in my language, so I will do that now. Henlef, Patashi Pims and Squashed, Tooth Klumchinkin, Hello, everyone. My name is Padashi Pims, and I am from Klemchin, which is also known as Lytton, BC. So I do, I do a number of things. I am a community climate justice coordinator with IDEA, which is a nonprofit organization based out of Victoria, or what is known as Victoria, BC. I am a Generation Power intern with Indigenous Clean Energy, and I'm also a web development student right now with the First Nations Tech Council. What brought me here was actually my position with Videa. We work, um, I work in climate justice and we are trying to bring more, more Indigenous voices into the world of the UN, but in policy as well. 
I agree 100%. Thank you so much for sharing that. Anik, what about you? Hi, yeah, thank you so much for having me um, be part of this discussion today. And I would like to start by acknowledging that I live and work on the traditional ancestral and unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coast Salish people. And that through their traditional knowledge, they've stewarded the land that we now call Vancouver since time immemorial. I have a Bachelor of Science in Natural Resource Conservation and, and currently have the privilege of working as a project officer at Hope International Development Agency, where we work with grassroots community-based organizations to collaborate directly with families and communities in creating local solutions to extreme poverty, fostering resilience, self-reliance, and sustainability. And thanks to the support and encouragement of my boss, Sean Burke, participated in this year's CSW, both as a delegate and also I was able to organize a side event in collaboration with BCCIC and VIDEA. And this event created space for panelists to share their experience of rural women's leadership in localized climate solutions in Pakistan, Haiti, Sri Lanka, and Canada. And so that was, yeah, really meaningful for me to be able to experience that this year. Wow, I love what you're working on, and I can't wait to hear more about your experience. Viv? Hi, thank you so much for having me on this podcast episode. Um, so my name is Viv Bwakwa, and I currently work as a programs coordinator for Minerva BC, which is a nonprofit that works to advance the leadership of women and girls in our communities. I'm also a policy analyst and a project manager at the Climate Change Branch at BCCIC, which is how I actually came by the CSW opportunity this year. My academic background is that I have a BA in economics and political science from UBC. I graduated last May and I was motivated to study these two areas after living in Venezuela for the last three years of my high school. Venezuela is a very beautiful country, but it's incredibly politically and economically distraught. So when I came across this year's CSW theme, a uh, priority theme, which was to discuss gender equity and equality in the face of climate change and work towards justice in intersectionality terms, I was really motivated to apply and join because I think like on an economic and political front, these conversations are so crucial to have. And so that's why I decided to apply and I'm so grateful that I got to take part in it. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. I can't wait to start this conversation. Actually, Mark has our first question. So Mark, over to you. Yeah, it's great to hear everyone coming from various different backgrounds and obviously we'll have very different perspectives and key takeaways from this year's commission. So our first question would be, what were the main takeaways from this year's CSW and what would you hope to see in future commissions? Anik, we could start with your thoughts. Yeah, thank you. One of my main takeaways from this year's CSW is that change is slow and complicated, sometimes unnecessarily. In such high-level forums and dealing with so many countries, a lot of compromises have to be made to put together a united document. While this is true, it's often discouraging, but I was pleasantly surprised at how often countries and the UN officials acknowledged the impact of climate change on women, indigenous peoples addressing climate change, and the role of age, race, and ability in climate gender policy. I was also able to witness the power of a diverse yet collective voice as many women shared their gender climate intersection in their context. Additionally, I heard from several men who are navigating what it meant for them to be an ally in these conversations. 
During Hope's side event, I heard from phenomenal rural women leaders whose perspectives I hope to amplify in our discussions today. In terms of future commissions, I would really like to see an increase in accessibility. I hope that CSW continues online access through hybrid forms in the future. But more than this, I would like to see support and spaces for the meaningful participation of marginalized women in decision-making. While I was organizing our side event, I gained a lot of insight into the myriad of challenges and barriers that prevent women who are marginalized from meaningful participation. For example, one of our panelists from Haiti, Fernand, had to travel four hours to Port-au-Prince. And although we had a local translator and other supports in place, we still faced a lot of barriers that prevented her from being able to meaningfully participate in the discussion. And this revealed to us the continued need for increased technical, cultural, and lingual support. And another one of our panelists, Dr. Kyla Perez from Sri Lanka, joined us in the middle of a scheduled power cut as Sri Lanka is currently facing an economic crisis. She was sitting in the dark with a light from her phone shining on her face and her computer plugged into an external battery. All of this just to participate in the conversation. And yet these are the perspectives that need to be heard. Lastly, I also hope that the discussion around climate change doesn't disappear from CSW conversations as it will only become more and more relevant in years to come. Well, I, I feel like you touched on so many key points with your response there, starting off just with how change can be so discouraging and slow at times, but also to very important points about accessibility. And even in an event where it was taken online, where you would think would be one of the more accessible events compared to prior years, there were still many barriers reached, especially for marginalized members and whose voices and matters need to be heard the most. Vib, I was wondering if, if you had any differing key takeaways from this year's commission. For sure, thanks. Um, I, I definitely want to start off by saying that I agree with Anique's note that it really is so incredibly difficult to create some sort of cohesive conclusions with so many different countries involved in a matter of like gender equality. It really shouldn't be that way. It seems like there's a straightforward answer, which is like equal rights and empowerment for everyone and access. But the fact that so many different member states are arguing against that or with like, you know, nuanced ideas, it can be frustrating at times, especially as like a first time delegate attending it. Somebody who's coming from a very academic background where, you know, policy and like textbooks and academic professors will often tell you like the answer is simple. It's in policy and you can just like rewrite it or repropose it to your local government and find the answers. But in CSW, when you're attending, especially when you're hearing from areas that are not, you know, in the global north or not living with some sort of like um, symbiotic access in, in society, there's already differing ideas within like how they're heard with by their local governments, if they even have access to that. A lot of women that were coming in were speaking of their peers or neighbors who don't even function as formal economies. They're rather like informal. And so I, I remember like one that particularly stuck with me is there's this village and I can't remember which country in Africa. I want to say it's somewhere in the southeastern part. But the the way this village works is they don't use monetary or printed money as their ec 
economic plate basis, they use goats. And so uh, they herd goats in their communities. And because they don't have access to a lot of them, women actually have like a goat trading program where they'll breed four goats and then they'll keep three, pass one on to like their neighbor and give them the opportunity to do the same. And by this, they're, they're also using the goats in like their agriculture. They're using them for like food production and to provide for their kids. So it's very much like a multifaceted, you know, business of sorts, but it's by no means something that you would see formalized in an economic textbook. And so I think one of the main takeaways for me in CSW was to really recognize the ingenuity and like resiliency that a lot of women are bringing in, in coming up with these solutions for climate justice and the kind of like intersectional barriers to working to overcome on a daily basis because we're having this conversation in a very much first world country where the maximum access to technology to resources with like a relevantly high education background but most of the countries who are experiencing the worst effects of climate change are nowhere on the same scale of like access to resources and so it was really humbling to find that out and to re recall that, you know, we should really use everything in our resources and um, in our hands to try to support and best help them. And I think I totally agree with Anique. And one of the things that I'd like to see in future CSWs is a continuation of hybrid models. I heard from a couple of delegates in the BCCIC team itself, as well as from, from some other ones in the chat rooms, that the fact that it was hybrid is the only thing that allowed them to attend. They would have never been able to arrange a visa in time or they didn't even have a passport prepared at that point. So if it was based at only a physical location, they wouldn't have had the opportunity to participate. So just to include the sort of voices which don't even have access to travel resources, the CSW needs to continue to create continuous avenues of participation, even when the pandemic isn't like a precursor anymore. Well, those are some really great points, specifically with bringing in different ideas and ingenuity, what it could look like in the future. And also touching onto that main point of accessibility through these hybrid models. And just even the thought of being able to participate in these conversations would be impossible for many, many people in attendance. And Patashi, I was wondering if you could wrap up any other key takeaways that we might have not touched on so far. Yeah, I mean, we've touched, we've touched on so much so far. And it's definitely even <laughs> moved a few wheels in my own head. But I guess I would say is change is needed. And like I've seen, because I've, I've never really participated in anything on like an international level and something that I've noticed, all of our problems are so different and our solutions will also be very different. But what I did notice was, is we have those solutions for those problems where most, most communities do and most, most countries do on the smaller scale within the people. It's change within government, it's change within large corporations and large companies are really the issues that we're facing. The accessibility, some great points were brought up. I think what I would also say along that was having pre-recorded sessions and posting those recording sessions. I know for me personally, I, I'm in school, I have, I have a job as well, completely separate, and I did really want to participate in everything that I could. And so I know even from some of my coworkers, I heard they were going, they were waking up at like 4 a.m. and going on the 4 a.m. calls, which was crazy. I loved that dedication. I did it once. I could not do it again, but I would love to see recorded sessions. I know a few, a few did, a few people, a few of the side events did post those afterwards. So I did get to watch those and I was very excited that I could go back and watch it again. 
instead of hopping out between class and between meetings. I'd also like to see, see the UN expand on the definition of woman. I would really love to see that to include. I know there was an effort in some, some events to also include gender diverse people. I would like to see it more, more widely used. I think that would bring, bring a lot more into the conversation and be a lot more inclusive. Yeah, thank you for that. You hit on really uh, important key points, and especially with the pre-recordings, how that for you personally helped you listen to a lot of key components of the whole commission. And the other key point that you hit on that I think will lead us into our next question is seeing the UN expand on their definition of women. Eliana, did you want to take over and lead us into the next section? Absolutely. Actually, that's one of the things that I really appreciated about this year's theme is that it kind of broke a silo between gender equality and climate change. And looking at gender equality in the context of climate change, I think is so important. And it brings up a lot of interesting discussions on climate justice. And that's the next question I have really for everyone is why? Why are discussions of gender equality especially important in the context of climate change. I'm going to start with Vib actually this time. Awesome. Thanks. Yeah, I this is such a key, I think, foundational point that everybody needs to agree on is that it's so important to have these discussions because women in traditional societies and cultures where women aren't even held at the same level as men are kind of the bearers of the burden. So they're the ones, you know, handling the majority of agriculture and farming. They're the ones collecting food for the home. They're the ones collecting fuel for heating and cooking. They're the ones preparing clothes. They're the ones walking kilometers on end to get water. And so when you're touching on the basic elements of the earth, which very directly tie into climate change, and then you're not discussing how these women could contribute to effective techniques and reducing climate change effects, it seems kind of ridiculous that we're still at that point where governments are deciding if this is even a valid conversation to have. But I think it's incredibly important to recognize that when women are being disproportionately affected because all of these responsibilities that they're burdened with, in a lot of communities where it's still not recognized that they're dealing with household responsibility as well, they have the responsibility of raising children and often providing them with education if they don't have a formal schooling setting. So on top of all that, to carry the burden and stress of climate anxiety seems like it's avoidable by having conversations like this and by having events like the CSW. Extensive policy research shows that when you give women the same access to production rights or to land rights or agricultural rights, they're able to improve the GDP of the region and they're able to more efficiently produce agriculture. They're able to bring water resources closer to themselves. And so they're able to dedicate more time to their kids, to their families, to economic and human capital improvement and less loss over their own health or over obviously climate effects. So I think it's incredibly important that they're given more opportunities to prevent, uh, to share the ways in which they bring in creative solutions, whether it's goat herding or in a lot of communities. I'm originally from India. And so over there right now in, in Western society, I've seen a lot of trends around zero food waste or like healthy fashion trends. But in India, this isn't thing, a thing for like 
years, thousands of years on end. We've always been zero food waste. We use like every part of the fruit and vegetable. And that's been like my grandmas, my aunts, you know, in those villages and those cities. And so recognizing the value that these women hold, whether they're coming from an academic or formal background or not, and weaving those in effectively to policymaking and economic decisions is like the only sustainable way forward, in my opinion. Having that conversation is, is the first biggest step in doing that. 100%. I'm so glad you said that because yes, achieving gender equality will help us create more innovative climate solutions, more empowerment. I love that. Thank you so much for bringing up those incredibly important points. Patashi, what about you? See, this is such a a big question because when you boil things down and you really look at gender equality and you really look at climate change and the intersections of it all, I agree with Vib with what she was saying there with women and gender diverse diverse people are the pillars of our communities. They are the ones we we go to when we need help, when we need to figure out a problem, when we need to figure out a solution to something. And we're not given the rec- the same like recognition for it, which is which is crazy. We like we we are the ones who birth kids, we're the ones who raise them, who who teach them teach them everything, the way of life. And when we're talking about those things specifically too, I know with, with what Viv was touching on a bit there was how some, like all of our teachings and our upbringings are now coming to light or coming more to the main society. And it's coming up as, oh, look at this cool new thing that we're doing. And I've seen this so much um, within, within North America. I'm like, I, I'm indigenous, I'm in the common Yakima. So what I'm seeing now, when we, we talk about climate justice and solutions to the climate crisis now, we, we're seeing certain things come up. We're like, oh, we should do this. We, should, we shouldn't drill oil as much. Oh, we, we, should, we shouldn't fish as much. We should only take exactly what we need and shouldn't overexploit things. And that the, those are things that our people have been doing for tens and thousands of years. But it's coming to light as this cool new thing, like, oh, yes, just do this and we'll be fine. And that's all teachings that have come from our mothers, our grandmothers. And it's not something that's seen as scientific, which it definitely should be. And I think that's a big thing as well when we talk about women and gender diverse and the not like the gender diverse people and the knowledge that they hold, it's not seen as scientific unless it comes from a university degree, which, which is, I don't, which, which is wrong, first of all, because it's the same, it's the same kind of knowledge and it should, should hold the same amount of power just because they couldn't go to school because they had other, other like family obligations to uphold. They're not, they don't have the same access to education. It should still be seen as real and viable knowledge, especially when we talk about climate change and the climate crisis and solutions to that. But you're saying such valuable things like the the value of lived experience and the value of learning through generations and just the value of like traditional knowledge. I, I think these points are so important because, yes, they make a huge difference in our approach to climate solutions and climate change and achieving gender equality. So I appreciate that you're bringing up this particular point. Thank you very much, Patashi. What about you, Anik? Yeah, yeah, all of those are 
are so, so valuable. And one of the things that uh, I talked about earlier was just talking about climate change and, and women and having these discussions. And it reminded me of something that Dr. Rubina Feroz, one of our panelists from Pakistan, she shared a story of this girl who is in eighth grade and this girl is talking and keeps talking about climate change and how it's uh, affecting girls and women, but particularly girls. And Rubina explained that this is a strategy to overcome the barriers and challenges that women face in regards to climate change. Because as she powerfully states, we can't change what we never discuss. And so to Fib's points earlier, yeah, like women are disproportionately affected by climate change and uh, gender roles, especially for real women, do cause them to feel the impacts of climate change more aggressively. And their role in, in agriculture is based on their traditional knowledge and based on what they observe from climate patterns and the unexpected rains and floods and longer dry seasons are creating serious challenges for these women and their livelihoods. And both Rubina and Fernand reminded us that women are not traditionally trained in disaster risk management. And because they lack this information on how to respond, it leaves them as victims to bear the brunt of natural disasters. But also, in addition to being directly impacted by climate change, there are a lot of other gender norms that make women more vulnerable. For example, in some areas of Pakistan, women do not have their national identities card, which is used to vote. And without this card, they're not in the system. And so their existence is non-existent. And this also means that when gover the government starts a program that is aimed to support these women, many of them are not able to access it as it is tied to this card. In addition to this, they have limited access and control to resources because everything is written in the male family member's name. And this limits women's ownership and access to support for things like microcredit. And Fernand and Haiti explained that women's voices are undervalued and underestimated, preventing them from meaningful participation in decision-making. But Rubina emphasized that what we all need to understand and that women have been learning is that it's time to make a shift from a victim narrative to a leader narrative. And Kala showed that rural women in Sri Lanka are leading the process of facing the cha challenges of climate change using local knowledge and collective action of women working together. And many of these women-led initiatives are purposefully creating space for women by looking at alternative sustainable practices that meet their practical needs will they look for long-term change in their status. And this collective action creates for women a pathway for their voice to be heard on specific concerns over their current access and control over their resources. Through this, women are able to work towards their rights and justice, finding their own resilience. And Kala clarifies that it is not just about getting microcredit. It's not just about planting something targeting the next harvest, but that it's a long-term process. Wow. <laughs> wow. I have nothing to add. That was so beautifully said. Thank you very much, Anik. That's all for part one of our CSW Roundtable. Please join us again soon for part two.